Cinderella, funny fella, running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head, and nobody answered me. This is Bruce. And this is Blix. John's not with us this week, so it's just the two of us. Thank you again for joining us for the Fringeworthy Podcast. This week, we're talking about how big is big. Otto? You know, when somebody is traveling at their speeds, they say, yeah, okay, well, I'm going uh, to pull a bootleg reverse, and, you know, or I'm just going to whip around this asteroid, or, or, you know. It becomes more realistic when people have an understanding of, yeah, you really can't do that. You are traveling ungodly fast, and m- making a fast turn is going to splatter everyone against the side of the ship. Yeah, if you could do it, it would you know it would be really bad. Or you know when you're traveling at those speeds, and the and the game master says, "Yeah, there's an asteroid about five five thousand feet out." That means the thing is about to hit you. By the time he's finished saying it, it's gone. Uh, right, right. So it's just you know it's it's like like it, like in Star Trek when they're traveling at those really fast speeds or whatever, and they see something on their on their view screen, um, you know, and they say it's several astronomical units out, an astronomical unit being the distance from the Earth to the Sun. Right, ninety-three you know, million miles. Right. And they're coming up on the thing. It's not unrealistic that they're just coming up on it really quickly because they're traveling at such speeds that they are covering those kind of distances that quickly. Anything less than that, you can't even react to. Right. It's it's gone. Yeah. It's like, hey, we had – oh, there it goes. Let's warn the guy at the end of of this wagon train (laughs) to do something about it because he has time to slow down and actually deal with it. Right. In space 1999 – one of the big issues that they had was they were traveling so fast that they would come into a solar system and they had enough time to send the ship down to have a little short interaction with the people on the planet. But then they had to leave right away because otherwise it wouldn't have enough fuel to catch up to the, the moon before it, it was so far away from the solar system that they, they just end up being marooned in space. Right. So they had these tiny windows of opportunity. Now, you know, we know that, that nobody could carry that kind of fuel, you know, but the point was is that taking that into account, they still tried to help you understand that what was going on in the moon base was most of the time they were like, okay, we're sending you out, but we can't help you. Because we're moving away at the same time you're going down there. If you get stuck down there, maybe we could send some supplies behind us and they'd go back to you and then you'd have it there. And that's what you'd have for the rest of your life. And we keep on going. But we can't go back and rescue you because we're sending you now because this is the only time we can do this so that you can get there and come back. (laughs) Right. They tried to include some real scientific limitations because of the scale of what they were doing. Scale is important. Try to 
invest your characters in what's going on so they can go and say, all right, I'm dealing with something that means I have to think in a new way. I have to think about solutions that aren't the same solutions I used before. Maybe I have to go to another world. I can't get to that world, but maybe we can go through the fringe paths. Let's leverage some devices we have. Maybe we can send a signal to somebody. Maybe we can get over to one of the, the system platforms, start sending equipment over to a location that 20 years from now, we can come back and go through another portal, and those people there will actually have what they need. You're going to have to come up with solutions that involve these really big scales. We ran to one world one time where they were having a worldwide problem. And they were all like, I'd like to help, but what can I do? These people are starving. The French path is only so wide, and we're based out of the Antarctic, and we can't exactly bring a train in here. So they had to start thinking. They had to say, we can't go back to IDET. IDEC can't help us. We have to go to some of the other worlds that we've explored, someplace where we can buy the grain we need and the food we need, and then we have to get trucks from another world, and we have to bring them back. We have to load them up, and we have to find people, enough people who are fringe-worthy to bring this food over to give these people so they can survive their present calamity and hopefully give them enough supplies that they're going to be able to start taking care of themselves okay, we're committing ourselves to like two years minimum to solve this one world's problems. We're going to be tied up for the next two years because nobody can go back and forth on the fringe pass but us because other teams are involved in other things. This is our problem. The the player said, okay, I guess that our team is done. We're going to be busy for the next two years. It's time for us to roll up new characters because we don't have time to do anything else. He said, what we're doing? I said, okay, that makes perfect sense to me. Roll up a new team. And so they did, and they went off to do other things while their first team was busy going back and forth and doing stuff that was going to literally take them two years to accomplish. Because if they didn't take two years, they might as well not do it at all. Yeah, and that there's your your scale. Yeah. You know, that has nothing to do with distance or anything like that. Well, I mean, kind of, but really, the scale that you're working with is the enormity of the problem, the scale of the problem to helping people. Now, uh, one thing before we move on to the to the second half is that we didn't talk about scale in the terms of small. You know, we're talking about scale. We keep talking about scale in, in the terms of large. And I don't really know mm-hmm. how much of this we we really need to cover. You know, in case you're gonna, unless you're gonna do something like a micronauts type of world or something. You know, where you go to another and you're shrunk down or something. But maybe you go to a world and you're helping out little people. You know, like your Gulliver. There are people who are only like six inches tall or something. And that could present its own problems because here you are, this lumbering thing, you know, moving through the world. You got to make sure you don't step on anybody. That's the only instance I can think of going small. Uh, I can think of one example, and that is if you were dealing with some kind of nanobot type of, of attack, you can't just go and shoot the nanobot. They're so small, you can't see them. You can't target them by any kind of normal means. You can't tape over your windows. You, can't, you, know, you have to figure out a solution that will block them on their scale. You have to you know, seal your windows with some kind of plastic foam, and uh, which hopefully they can't eat. And maybe you have to come up with some kind of an aerosol attack that will be able to take them all out at the same time because you, know, you can't attack them individually. Maybe the only thing that would be a saving grace is that if – they get the upper hand, you know, you could go through the, the portal and, and disable them if they are electronically based. But they might 
Yeah, they might feed off of biomechanics, right. and that might that might not help you at all. The only real saving grace with things like nanotech is that since they are so tiny, they're localized. Unless they've been released over the entire world, if they get out of the bottle, let's say, for them, going afoot is stellar distances. Right, right. They have to travel on things. You know, that that's something that people tend to forget a lot of times with nano. You know, you a lot of the stories I see and a lot of the stuff that they do with these these nano the nanotechnology, you know, you see this this like uh, the gray goo just oozing over everything and destroying everything and it's like well, how does it move so fast? Because, I mean, on its scale, you know, the distances traveling one foot is like traveling miles for it. And how does mm-hmm. it – I mean, this thing must be moving at like, you know, mock speeds on its terms. And then if it hits any water molecules, you know, at that scale, moving through water is like moving through, you know, king syrup. So it's like – it really has this stuff move so fast. So you're right. It is limited to whatever's carrying it because moving on its own, it has to cover such a great distance. And where's it getting all that energy from? You know, where's it getting the energy to travel all that distance? Well, it could be getting it from sunlight. Right, but it takes time to absorb that that sunlight, which is another thing that would slow it down. It would have to break down the surrounding materials, uh, absorb you know, CO2 from the air and turn it into diamond and build itself. And I could see the gray goo taking over the world, but either it had to be something that you, nobody realized what it was until it got, and it got spread all over the world by just little bits getting on people and they carry it someplace else that drops here and there. And so you have these little tiny spots that grow out, grow out and start collecting. And then they start forming together more and more and you kind of fill in the blank spots. And so all of a sudden you turn right. around and this stuff's everywhere or it's growing outward from a single source you definitely could walk away from it it wouldn't be able to catch you but it could be relentless it'd be like i'm looking at it it's the doom of the world it's coming unless we can figure out a way of stopping it it's not going to slow down it's just going to keep creeping 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 bigger and bigger as the diameter keeps getting bigger it's not going to go any faster but it's still growing and growing and growing and it's getting bigger in size and it makes it a bigger problem to solve so finally you're thinking about nukes and stuff if you're running a campaign and you you want to use you know nanoscale creatures just remember they're 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 going to move slow unless you've got some kind of macro uh, device that you know, like a, an injector or a sprayer or something right. like that that's supposed to spray it out. I used uh, nano devices in one adventure, and what I did was I literally had them, in a sense, suspended in basically like methanol. And I literally sprayed it like a cloud at some pirates. And literally, I didn't even do that. I basically created an aerosol that sprayed up in the air, and the fact that the air was coming down onto the platform and then moving out to the edge like it normally does, carried that cloud with it all the way over and smacked right into the side of the uh, pirate uh, vehicle. And then it started eating. It took them about three or four hours to make a significant dent on that that thing. And they didn't realize anything was going wrong until all of a sudden the the color of their vehicle started changing. That's the danger of this stuff is that even though it is limited by – you know, the time it takes for it to do things, that's actually one of its strengths at the same time because it's subtle. And then by the time you realize it, you're like infested. But this wasn't any crazy thing like you see, uh, let's say in G.I. Joe, where within a space of like, 30 seconds, it had taken out the Eiffel Tower. Or uh, War of the Worlds. That stuff is, I mean, it's it's fun 
science fiction, but it is it's fantastic. It's really just super fantastic. It's it probably would not be like that. Well, unless we're talking about real super science. Yeah, but we're talking like real, real super science. And if you're yeah. dealing with something like that, then you really don't stand a whole lot of chance against it. That's like run. Yeah, well, that's where if you're really being honest about it, you're talking negotiation. You're saying, okay, right. what can we do to make this stop, oh, great master being? At that point, it, it's not about winning. It's about damage control. Exactly, exactly. You know, when the asteroid, you know, hits the Earth, okay, <laughs> <laughs> the question is whether or not human beings are alive anymore. Right. It's not a question of how much damage did it do or how big was that wave that hit the side, you know, hit the continent. Is there an atmosphere? Right. Did the temperature rise 200 degrees and fry everything in front of it before the wave hit? We're not talking about some little meteorite. You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. Uh, when I was talking about that one uh, adventure where they had to solve a food crisis on a planet. Uh, and it wasn't even a planet, it was really just a, lo- a town a local area, but it was big enough that they had to really commit themselves to it. So one of the things when we talk about how big things is, is to talk about the scope of your adventures. And even not just the scope of your adventures, the scope of your campaign. You need to decide as the GM and as players, you know, how big do you want your adventures to be? If you're a, a group of people that are busy lives and just get together maybe once a month to play Fringeworthy for a few hours, Okay, you don't want adventures with big scope unless you know you really are going to be hand waving almost everything, you know, or being thrown. Uh, we we'll refer to it as in media res, where you're simply just thrown into the climax and you deal with the climax and, and the adventure's over. So you know you probably want a smaller adventure, something that involves a negotiation, you know, or you need to explore a single ruin in the middle of a, a giant necropolis. Uh, or you have a simple mission of taking something from one place to another and a little bit of interaction with people. You want something small. You want something big. A, you, you won't be able to give it its justice because if the GM is going to have to like send you a whole ream of paper or, or you know a, a CD explain to you all the things about the situation that you need to know before you start, before you even understand what's going on in the adventure – and then after you do your thing, then you probably won't be able to get it done. So now we're talking about trying to maintain a continuity of adventure from month to month to month when you're only meeting for a few hours. It, you're not going to succeed. Your campaign's going to be a failure. You're probably going to blame the game, and that's not fair. We, don't, we want you to, to enjoy the game, but we need you to understand the limitations of your players and how much time you as a GM are willing to commit to creating an adventure. But at the same time, you might be running long campaigns where you have players that meet every week. So that does not mean that you have to have big, long campaigns. You can still do what are mostly considered, you know, single run or or one-shot adventures. I mean, you can still, small Small arcs, arcs, you can do that. Um, or you can have a big long arc, but my suggestion, and, and it's what we've been played with most of the time, is we have a bunch of small arcs that are all part of a large arc, and 
a lot of times what you want to do is, is you want to sit down and you want to figure out what is the big story here? You know, what, what do I want them to deal with in the long run? Maybe you come up with a, a major villain. You have a bunch of small arcs that will lead you up to that. You know, this adventure, that adventure, this mission. And every one of those gets them closer to this big villain. I don't know, maybe they fight some guy and it turns out he has some kind of clue towards some company he works for or something. But it's not a big deal because it's just something he had in his wallet. But somebody happens to mention, you know, hey, there's this kind of a weird card that he had in his wallet. And maybe everybody blows it off. But then when they see it again later on, on, you know, somebody's stationary or, you know, somebody has a, a gun manufactured by that company and they start saying, wait, wait, this name keeps coming up. And then they go to investigate it. You can take these little stories and turn into this big, long story. And then that's just one example. I mean, you, you could have it anything. I don't know what, what your adventure is going to be revolving around. You know, if, if you're doing it, say, you eventually want to get them involved in Mellers, you could actually have, say, a master Meller trying to do an infestation and they're running into little things along the way and then eventually at the end of you know say 10 or 15 adventures they're actually going to then encounter mellers for the first time maybe not the master who's controlling this whole thing but then they start realizing this whole time we've been dealing with an infestation so you can have big arcs you can have little arcs and you can have little arcs as part of big arcs and if you do that in all cases no matter what the scope that you're going for, always make sure that your small arcs have a satisfying conclusion so that if for any reason players drop out or the players get tired of that particular arc, then they still have a good feeling about what they've done. They still feel like they've accomplished something worthwhile. That's true because no one likes to do an adventure and feel as if nothing happened at the end of it. Nobody wants to play The Empire Strikes Back. Right, right. Even though that was the best movie, you don't want to be the characters in that. Yeah. Although, you know, that's okay to do once in a while. You can't always win, of course, and it's okay to have some adventures where, you know, the story arc ends and the players are like, well, what just happened? I mean, crap, we didn't do anything this adventure. That's okay once in a while, but for the most part, your goal should be to have a conclusion. Even if you fail. Okay, the GM should have that as a stepping stone to something else. So there should never be true failure. There is only only a, a deviation between the expectations of the players and what actually happens. So let me break this out a little bit as an example. Fringe pirates. You go out and you run into a fringe pirate. This is a bandit on the road. Right, you deal with him. Either the, initially he he basically walks all over you, but later on you run into a fringe pirate. You probably have the firepower to maybe go toe to toe with them. Maybe you kill them. You know, let's say you do. All right, so that's a very small story arc. That's an adventure. You went out, you ran into a fringe pirate. You know, you killed him. Maybe you got some information from the wreckage of his ship. Maybe you captured a few of them that were unusually talkative because fringe pirates aren't supposed to give up anything. Right. And that's all you know about them. That's it. They're French guys. They're marauders out there. They're like highwaymen. You just run into them occasionally, and that's all there is to it. Or French pirates are actually part of a larger organization, confederation, which actually has territories. And you fought against a French pirate, and when he doesn't return, then the other members of his confederation are going to start coming out looking for who's now has the the power, the, the, the whatever, to 
stop one of them from going about their appointed rounds. You can go even further and say, okay, this confederation of Springe pirates, they're not just a, a loose confederation of pirates with territories. They're actually the income-producing arm of a great empire like the Roman Empire, you know, where they had armies that went out and found tribute and stuff, and they, they would conquer lands and bring stuff back to help fuel the empire. Well, Maybe that's what the French powers are part of this even greater empire. Now you've got to deal with this whole empire. That's exactly how your story arcs can grow. You have this small arc of you fought these French pirates, boom. And these arcs keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but they're still all part of a of a huge arc. You know, your arc might be you know, your your great big arc might be the players will take down or or they're gonna to have to resolve this issue with these French pirates. Or not. You could just simply say, no, this is where it stops. This is all they are. Right. Well, that's what you got to figure out before you even start a big arc like that is what do you think the player is going to be capable of? I mean, if you're planning on having this huge confederation of world-spanning fringe pirates, the players are not going to be able to stop that. But maybe their goal is to make peace with them, maybe make an alliance with IDET, you know, say, hey, you know – IDET is this military organization, and this is what we do. And, you know, the ultimate goal is going to be for the players to make a treaty with these pirates so that so that when the members of IDET see these guys, they leave them alone, and then they leave the, the members of IDET alone. Or you go strutting into them like, hey, what are you guys doing coming into our territory? Mm-hmm. Our organization is going around collecting you know, duty from th- this area. And they're like, well, you're not part of our confederation. No, we're not. We're another one. And you guys just messed with us. And that's going to cause some problems, don't you think? And if it's real, for a while there, you can probably fake them. You know, (laughs) but at the same time, you know, IDET's busy exploring worlds, making alliances, depending upon how long this takes this back and forth interaction with the pirates. By the time it actually comes to a head, you might actually have an organization as big as the pirates. And then you might have to say, well, we can either go to war or we can come to an accommodation. Right. And that's probably when you have an arc like that, when you when you have your big arc, you might want to even write down four different outcomes for it it's like okay if they try to take this approach this is this is the outcome this is the best outcome they're going to get take the pirate one we're using as an example well if they approach them as a territorial thing as if IDET is another organization much like theirs you know and you're you're squeezing in on our territory you might have some notes on well this is the kind of approach they're going to have to make to satisfy these guys and if they don't come in this way this is how they're going to react and then you might have another one if they come at them as a treaty. This is how this is going to play out. And you might have another one where if they just go at them full bore combat, this is how this is going to play out and what's going to need to be done. You know, like the one that the the adventure you just finished up where the pirates were controlling the node to IDET. And then the members of IDET had to go out and recruit other members who had been in other, you know, their allies to come take care of these pirates. Right. That might be the only way they can resolve that. might be in your notes. If they go at them toe-to-toe, they're going to have to recruit help because they'll never be able to do it on their own. Right. They had to go to a a highly advanced world to get their hands on a nano device to destroy the armor on the gigantic pirate battle tank. 
And then they went to the Victorians to get them to help create a vehicle that they could go up in and also to say, hey, we're not from Earth. We're the Victorians. We're a totally different world. What are you guys doing over here? And act as a diplomatic go-between so they'd have time enough to deploy the device. Need at least two different worlds plus their own people at IDET to be able to pull this off. But it helps if you have an idea of how your big arc can be resolved in several different ways. We're promoting a big arc with a bunch of little arcs, but you don't ever have to do that. You can just run one little arc after another. You could take all the modules you've collected over the years from all your different games, convert them over to Fringeworthy, or just make sure that you know what the encounters are going to be like in you know whatever version of Fringeworthy you're using, and just run them on modules. You know, or the adventures you buy from other countries. Like you might want to run them on a top secret module and then run them on a D&D module and then run them on a Savage Worlds module. Right. And and that's perfectly acceptable too. It de- depends on what your players like. Just ignore all the, 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 the long-term effects of the contact they've had on previous worlds. Yeah, in, in, yeah. in your Fringeworthy game, if you don't have another group of French pirates out there in that territory, that's fine too. There's no reason why they yeah. have to be. You don't have the you have to have the Chileans. You don't have to have the pirates. You could have one-shot adventures that are isolated from each other. In the early days of running Fringeworthy, that's all I did. I didn't really have great grandiose plans, uh, a great story arc. I said, okay, we're going to go to this portal now, and we're going to see what's there. And they go through, and I ran the adventure, and when they were done – we left and went back to ITES. Right. You know? well, that's, that's and, what we and did. And I worked up the next and, that, and worked up the next adventure. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. That's and and our scope was small because that. Well, our, in that sense, I mean, of course, they could involve an entire world, but mostly our adventures were very small in scope. So it's up to you as the GM and the players to think about what kind of things are going to jazz you up. Are, are political things going to jazz you up? Well, that's usually a pretty big s- scale. Okay, our super science kind of things and world spanning and, and galactic cultures. Do you want to solve things that require you going to multiple platforms to, to, to bring a solution? You have to decide the scope of your adventures and, and how much time it's going to take to do them and how much you're going to have to spend in detailing all these different factions and situations and contingencies because ultimately the idea is to convey that to the players. There's no point in you creating an entire world with 50 nations detailed and you have the names of all their kings and queens and and the levels of tech on each of them and all their plans for the next 100 years if the players are going to walk through, talk to somebody at the local bars and then turn around and say, "Yeah, nothing happened here. Bye." <laughs> right. You're going to be furious. You know, you're, you're going to say, okay, fine. And then the next world they go to is exactly the same world, except you just kind of you know, changed around the opening scene so they think it's a different world. You have to convey to them something that gets them, hooks them into that bigger thing. And I'm not talking about using the plot hammer. We're not talking about that. We're just simply saying is that you got to have this thing where you get them involved and get them seeing that what they're supposed to be doing there involves this bigger scope and gives them an opportunity to buy into it so that then they can get into that and they can go further, assuming that that's what you and your players want to do. All right, folks. So that's the scale of things, as it were. Keep in mind that the size... Infringeworthy can be anything. 
You can have trees the size of unbelievably tall mountains. You can have worlds that have oceans that are super deep. You can travel to different planets. These scales, they can be completely out of whack compared to what you see on Earth. And you should do that from time to time because it presents a an awe to the characters when they're playing. And just try and think about it before, you know, before you run the adventure. You know, how am I going to describe this, you know, this immense or, or even, you know, we were talking about the nanoscale. How am I, how's scale going to play into this? Also, just remember the scope of your adventures um, can either be small or big or any combination thereof. If you're going to do like a, a huge scope, uh, you probably want to break it into bite-sized bits so that it's easy to absorb from game to game and... It can build a level of suspense and keep the characters interested. But at the same time, you don't ever need to do that. It depends on what your your players are into. If you have a lot of players who are very intricate and very involved in role-playing, generally you want to go with a big arc with a bunch of smaller arcs. But if you have you know your weekend players who never think about the game in between, they just come to roll dice and kill stuff, you, know, you want to just keep a bunch of small arcs and, and just keep it fun and light. We want to thank you for listening to us, and hopefully we got you some, some great ideas, and we're going to be looking to give you even more. But until then, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. And this is Blix. Remember, bullets speak louder than words. <laughs> Thank you.